Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, fellow travelers. I've got a special episode to share with you today. Our friend, Chris Marchand, has actually written a book on Christmas, and he's got some really fun quirky, off-kilter, and I actually think quite radical ideas about Christmas, its origins, and its present-day practices. So I asked Chris if he would sit down and take over the Tent Theology microphone for this episode. And he's recorded a whole uh, examination of Christmas, and there's going to be three more that we put into the Patreon podcast subscription list. But please enjoy this particular episode of a Christmas with the political aspects put in with Chris Marchand. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. This is Chris Marchand, one of the co-hosts and uh, producers at Tent Theology Podcast. You often hear me more in the background during an interview or one of our debrief sessions. Today, I'm going to give my own tent talk, and it's going to be about Christmas. A little bit about me. I'm a, I'm a priest, an Anglican priest in America, and I'm a music pastor. I've been a teacher as well and a headmaster of a, of a Christian school. And over the years, as I've, also, as I've delved into podcasting, I've, I've always been writing. And last year, I was fortunate enough, after figuring it out and, and building it up uh, for a couple of years, I uh, published a book. And it was a book on Christmas called Celebrating the 12 Days of Christmas, A Guide for Churches and Families. In, in, in the time that I've published that, I've continued to think about aspects of Christmas that, I, that, that haven't quite yet, uh, I, I feel like there's still work to be done. There's still uh, things to work out. And so that's what this tent talk is today. It's, uh, it stems from my book, but it's also a, con- it's a continuation of, of some of the things I laid out there. So this is the first of four episodes uh, this first one is on service or serving others during Christmas, and how might we begin to reimagine that? Uh, this podcast is on reimagining uh, politics and theology and the way of following Jesus. And uh, some of you might even be immediately annoyed. Well, what, what are we doing? What are we doing talking about Christmas and politics? What's this guy wasting our time for? Well, <laughs> I hope to really be able to draw out how Christmas actually connects and how holidays and celebrations in a very general way connects to every aspect of our lives. There's some definite political ramifications uh, to the to holidays and especially to Christmas. And that's what we're going to get into today. As a, as a bit of a reminder, this episode is going to be available on the podcast, but episodes two, three, and four will be available on our Patreon page for those who want to subscribe to that. So thank you for your support. Let's start out with a story. I was in my local grocery store. I was shopping, and I, I have four kids, and we barely make it sometimes. Uh, we've had some really hard financial years in our own lives. It's, it's, uh, it's been tough. It's been a tough few years. It's tough for a lot of people right now, and uh, many of us sense that. We walk into a grocery store, and we, we can't see people's faces because they have masks on, but we can see their eyes sometimes. But really, do we see their eyes? We, we, we t- kind of tend to divert, don't we? We, we don't look. <laughs> we look away. 
and I'm busy. I'm busy in the store. I'm, I, I, have, I have a list or a mental list, and I'm, I'm just trying to get through. Uh, I haven't been taking my own children to the store. You, you know, you don't want to expose them to something, get them sick or something like that. And, and so here I am going down the juice aisle, and this man comes up to me. And he says, hey, hey man, hey, hey, I, hey, I know I'm black. He, he said that. He said, I know I'm black, but uh, I, uh, I'm here in Peoria. My, my, my wife's sister is sick, and I just, I just don't have any gas money to be able to get back to my hometown. And he mentioned a hometown that was about uh, 45 minutes to an hour away. And so, you know, he, he, he was getting close to me. You know, he, he had invaded my personal space in the grocery store. Um, he had informed me that he was black, which meant that that must be a problem to me as a big, big white dude with a beard. And he's wanting money. Now, I have never been asked for money in a grocery store before. No, not that I can recall. I, I see people all the time standing on street corners and in and, and city asking for money. They usually have a, a flat piece of cardboard and they've written on it and it says what they need, what, what they're looking for, maybe part of their story. I've never been stopped in a grocery store before, though. What did I do? How did I react to this man who was voicing his need, who had, who had stopped me in my tracks? And, and, in, and in many ways, not because he was a black man, for crying out loud, but because we were in a grocery store and he, he had crossed over the boundaries of the social boundaries. And he knew it, too. And I knew it. And how did I react? I'm going to get to that reaction uh, in, in a later section. <laughs> I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to loop back around. Now, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, it's going to become clear here in just a minute. But before I begin my Christmas talk, I want to go over three foundational principles that are going to guide these episodes on Christmas. And remember, today is on service. Okay, here's principle number one. It's really not necessarily a principle as a plea to you as those who listen to this podcast. And it's this. I am not a practitioner. I am not an event planner. And, and I, as I wrote this book about Christmas, I came to realize, because okay, here, here's how the book is structured. Half of all the chapters are on the history of the days of Christmas. So you'll get uh, the feast uh, day of St. John on the 27th, or you'll get the feast of the Holy Innocents. And so the, the first part of all the chapters is, is history. And the second part is all of these practical applications. And so the other half of my chapters are, here's what you can do. Here's some old ideas. Here's some new ideas. Here's some adaptations. And as I wrote the book, I realized, man, I, I am not a party planner. And boy, I, I really desperately hope some party planners are reading this book. That's what I really hope for. I'm the kind of guy that sits in a corner and broods. <laughs> but but if, if left to myself at a party, I'm not the guy that's the life of that party. I'm not the guy dancing out in the middle of the dance floor. I kind of want to hide a little bit. I, I, I want to find two or three people and have a great in-depth conversation about something that, that we're passionate about. Maybe a movie we saw, maybe a current issue that we want to d- debate, an, an impromptu debate, and just enjoy that conversation. I also kind of just want to hide in the corner and read a book, which is uh, one, of the, one of the traditions that I talk about uh, that I go over from Iceland where they had this tradition of giving, gifting each other books on Christmas. Love that type of stuff. But what I came to realize is that I need people's help. If you are the type that loves to plan games and activities, especially for kids, if you're the type that loves to organize events in a community, today's on service. And so somebody needs to organize something or needs to get a group of people together to discuss these topics. 
If that's you, then I'm speaking to you. For those of us that are more introverted, well, maybe maybe go along with the invite even when you don't feel like it. You know, well, somebody's, somebody's planning a committee. Oh, I guess, guess I better go. <laughs> if, if that's you, however you find yourself, I am looking for practitioners. And I am merely one guy that I've done my research and I'm hoping that you can benefit from it. Okay, number two, reinventing Christmas. You might think that if I wrote a book on Christmas on the 12 days and it's, it's partially a historical book, you might be thinking that I want us to get back to the good old days of celebrating Christmas. And to some extent, that's true. But what I came to find in my research is that the, the traditions, the customs associated with the holiday, they have always been changing and shifting to some extent. Looking back, here, here's my advice on Christmas. I don't want us to just try to be as faithful to traditions as possible. That's actually just kind of this pointless endeavor. For instance, I go to a liturgical church, which some people call a traditional church. And as much as my church follows a set liturgy, a set of prayers all the time, it's, it means nothing if we're not transforming it and reshaping it and reinventing it every single Sunday, even if we're saying the same words. It's a new liturgy every single Sunday. So I would encourage us all to see Christmas this way. Some of us are really dissatisfied with Christmas. We're disgusted with Christmas. Uh, the, the crass commercialization or the pain associated with, with the broken relationships around us, in our own family, in our own communities. We, we have a sour taste in our, in our mouths about this holiday. Ugh, just leave me alone. Sure, I'll take the time off work, but do I have to do this again? Well, no matter where you find yourself, uh, those that love this holiday or those who are just about done with it, the challenge before us is to learn how to actually reinvent it in the future. All of the, the old traditions that are out there, and there's more than I can mention, right? There's more than I can mention even in, in my book, let alone this podcast episode. Every single old tradition has to be reinvented for today. So that, that, that's my encouragement, to think about how Christmas can actually be transformed. Okay, number three introductory principles here. Every holiday has four main aspects to it. Here they are. Worship, celebration, service, and rest. And those are going to be the four episodes that we do on Christmas here. Uh, as, as we're talking about Christmas, I want you to maybe think about some of the other holidays. Every holiday has some form of worshiping, where people gather together and they honor something or they have a commemoration of some kind. Every holiday has a time where there is a, a great celebration, uh, even if it's just among a small group of friends. There's, there's some, some kind of fun associated with it, a ritual sense of fun. The good holidays, the best holidays, often will have an element of service where we're giving out to others. Now, this might actually be one of the, one of the toughest uh, elements of holidays, and that's actually why I'm starting out uh, th these tent talks, uh, talking about service and serving others because it's such a challenge. Uh, but, but typically, holidays will have that. And finally, people rest during holidays. I mean, think about it. We take days off work. We lie around a bit. Uh, and often, the four elements can be combined. We, we, again, we struggle to combine the service with the other three. It depends on how you do it, but at certain times, you can, you can separate out the worship from the fun, from the rest and the service. But sometimes you find yourself in one single combined event doing all four uh, within the scope of a couple of hours. So there you go. Keep that in mind. Keep these four principles in mind and how they are interconnected with each other. Okay, let's get on with the talk itself. It was this past summer 
2020 in the midst of a lot of turmoil in my own country, but really turmoil around the whole world. We were and still are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. In America, there was, there was and still is political unrest, but especially in the spring and summer, there was many, many, many protests circulating around the country at racial injustice, specifically coming as a reaction to George Floyd and Breonna, Breonna Taylor's deaths here in America. And something happened during one of the protests that specifically reminded me of Christmas. And it's, it's actually kind of funny. Here's, here's what happened. It happened in St. Louis, Missouri. It was late June and some, some very, very iconic images began to emerge from a situation that happened down there during one of the protests. Uh, a group of people had gathered near downtown St. Louis to protest their mayor because of something that she had done where she uh, exposed the names and the, the addresses of some of the protesters. And the people that were protesting were going to the, to the mayor's house to ask that she resign. And in the midst of that, they marched. They marched from one section of the city to the next. And they happened down a private lane. I mean, if, unless you knew that, I'm not, I, don't, I don't exactly know what the protesters knew when they went down this lane. But it, it wasn't just a street. I mean, I would think it was just a street. It was just, you know, a sidewalk. There was a gate there, though, that you had to pass through and open, I believe. And so the people, the, the marchers, the protesters, they were loud. They, like, I, I, you know, they, these were not just, this was not a silent march. But they had uh, their noisemakers. They had their chants that they were chanting loudly, and they were demanding justice. And in, in getting to their mayor's house, they passed by Mark and Patricia McCloskey. Now, Mark and Patricia McCloskey are a, a married couple. They are defense lawyers, I think personal defense lawyers, as they're called. And they live in this rather large palatial mansion built uh uh, in earlier, a hundred years ago or so, by one of the heir, heiresses of the Anheuser-Busch family. And they came out waving guns at these protesters, telling them and yelling at them to get off their property. The, the iconic images are of this, of this couple with their guns. Uh, Patricia had her pistol and she was waving it in the air, threatening them. The, the protesters, some of them said, we don't want to hurt you. Others of the protests, they, they barked insults back at them, yelled back at them. It was a whole mixture. It was a whole a time of, of just confusion. And uh, the protesters eventually moved on. There's been lawsuits. You might be sitting here wondering, what does the, any of this have to do with Christmas? And, you know, one of the sad things in my research that, that really, really struck me was how the art of protest has completely gone away from Christmas. It's not there at all. What we have forgotten is that Christmas was a time of year where the poor would make their voices heard to the rich and powerful. They would go around and in, in their own way protest the fact that they did not have enough money, that they did not have enough to provide for themselves or enough food to eat during the lean Christmas months, and they would raise a stink. Now, I want you to think about a protest. What is that? It's people marching from one area of their city to the, to the next in the hopes of getting their voice heard, right? That kind of protest, at least. Sometimes they stay in one place. But what are they doing? They're marching. Uh, might we say they're actually parading? <laughs> does, that, does, does this scene in St. Louis and other places around America or around the world, what does it look like? 
looks like a parade. And uh, so I, I want to read you a passage from, from one of my favorite books on Christmas, if not my very favorite book. It's called The Battle for Christmas by Stephen Nissenbaum. Just a wonderful book. I can't recommend it enough. Here's what he says. Uh, and, and actually, he was couching this in some of the history when Christmas was actually banned. And so it was especially banned in the Commonwealth of England uh, during the time when Oliver Cromwell ruled. It was the Puritans. They took over. They, they uh, got rid of. They beheaded Charles I. And they instituted a new, a new government. Uh, Christmas was banned during that, that season. And it was also banned in, the, in some of the, like in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Puritan-led areas in the American colonies. And so he's talking about what's what's the historical context of this? So let let me me read a passage from this book. The poor, most often bands of boys and young men, claim the right to march to the houses of the well-to-do, enter their halls, and receive gifts of food, drink, and sometimes money as well. And the rich had to let them in, essentially to hold, quote, open house. Christmas was a time when peasants, servants, and apprentices exercised the right to demand that their wealthier neighbors and patron, patrons treat them as if they were wealthy and powerful. The lord of the manor let the peasants in and feasted them as if they were the lords of the manor. In return, the peasants offered something of true value in a paternalistic society, their goodwill. Just when and how this actually happened each year, whether it was gracious offering or the forced concession to a hostile confrontation, probably depended on the particular individuals involved, as well as the local customs that had been established in years past. So what had happened was, it was a time of year where the poor, or those that were working but really didn't make very much money at all, they there was frustration that grew out of their own lives and they couldn't take it anymore. And they went to the wealthy or to those who owned businesses and they demanded that they receive something in return. Now, uh, in England especially, uh, there had been, or there I don't know to what extent people do this anymore, but there's a tradition of wassailing. And uh, for those of us that maybe sing Christmas carols around the year, we know the, the wassailing song, wassail, wassail all over the town. And that, that, uh, that carol and other carols like it, they exist as a, as a back and forth between the, the roving band going to the house and asking for a drink in return or for some, some refreshments in return. And they, 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 they call a blessing upon the, the house, the house of the master, if the master is able to bless them in return, but if not, ah, then they, they cast a curse down upon them. Now, this also resembles uh, trick-or-treating. Think about it, trick or treat. Uh, people go from house to house asking for a treat of some kind, a sweet of some kind. And there, there, there are these very similar traditions and customs. Uh, Halloween is couched in, in the sense of maybe a, perhaps a, a roving spirit, uh, spirits that have been unleashed, the ghosts of the past that have been unleashed upon the earth um, on these particular days of darkness, which, by the way, Christmas is also an associated day of darkness. So there's this correlation between Halloween and Christmas, but also between these door-to-door customs where people were asking to receive something in return. So I want you to imagine in, in, in an odd way that protesting is a Christmas tradition. Now, here's what's sad about what happened in St. Louis with the McCloskeys. 
the McCloskeys didn't see, didn't, didn't understand their place in the whole ritual. Instead of going out on their porch and waving around their guns, their job was to feast the protesters, to acknowledge the plight of the protesters, to, to say, oh, yes, yep, you, you, we, we live in a palatial mansion. We obviously are the haves. And uh, you, the underprivileged masses, are the have-nots. And so come, come, uh, drink with us, feast with us. We, we, we have prepared a feast for you. And uh, we, we want to we let you know that we acknowledge your place in this world. You've come to our mansions, and now the, the tables can be turned for an evening. Please come and enjoy the season. We, we, we understand. And, and so here's the problem. Here, here's how this actually all evolved. Can you imagine... A, a, a band of young men or a whole group of people coming to a, a, a wealthy person's home and demanding that they give up their possessions, demanding that they, that they give up their wealth. Now, that's, that kind of practice isn't going to stand for very long. Just like our protest in St. Louis, the McCloskeys didn't like it at all, actually. And so they haven't quite made it far enough to realize that in order to pacify the, the rioters, in order to pacify the masses, you have to figure out a way to give them what they want, to appease them. So, so here's the good thing about the, the protesters, at least to me in St. Louis, was that they were, they were standing up for what they thought was right. They had not allowed themselves to be pacified yet. Because actually, here's also what is part of the Christmas tradition. It, it is the neutering of those who, it is the neutering of the least of these, those who have no power. They are given a, a token of a gift to, to help them to feel as if for at least one night they have something. They can go off on their way. They've, they've had their bellies filled. Maybe they're, they're, they're uh, drunk with a little bit of wine. And thus, they can feel as if, well, at least those rich people gave us something. So here's something that was a revelation to me in, in my research. Think about it. Parades, they contain numerous groups from all over a community. And uh, so, so, for instance, uh, there's, a, there's several parades in my own hometown of Peoria, Illinois, one happens on July 4th, uh, Independence Day, and it just it, it contains everybody. There, there are uh, grade school marching bands. There's a local American Legion, veteran associations. Uh, there are newscasters. I don't know why newscasters, but they often seem to be sitting in cars waving at people. There, there, there are fire departments, um, and there's all manner of community groups in a local parade. But think about, let's, let's, let's uh, invert the, the concept of a parade. It's, it's a time where, we, where individual groups or individual voices want to be heard. But what happens if those individual groups were hostile? What happens if the parade became a roving band of rioters uh, threatening people in their own homes? What if, those, what if, what if, what if a parade was instead a, a, an, an act of chaos? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was disrupting the the balance of of our local communities. What if what if parades were violent instead? Well, if I was a civic leader, I might have the idea. Let's let's uh, let's transform a parade. How about this? Everybody gets to be in the parade, but we're going to make this peaceful instead. And uh, so, I, I, what I want you to do is to make a correlation between rioting and parading. They follow after each other because rioting can't exist forever in a society. It throws everything off. But the civic leaders can find a way to pacify, find a way to bring it under control. 
And in so doing, they both bring and restore peace to their community while also taking away the power of the paraders or the rioters. So here's what is tragically ironic about what happened in St. Louis with Patricia and Mark McCloskey. Neither side understood their Christmas role. They both failed. The McCloskeys, they didn't realize that they weren't supposed to bring out their guns, but they were supposed to bring out the victuals, <laughs> bring out the wassail, bring out the ale, um, bring out some hot apple cider or something, and get those protesters to calm down and let them know that, hey, it's going to be all right. We're rich and we're here and we understand. It's going to be a merry time. Come on, feast in our yard a little bit. The guns didn't quite bring about the Christmas spirit there. The protesters also, though, they didn't get their role either. Their job was to ask for something from the rich people and then go, all right, you know what? You gave us something on the holiday. I guess we'll, I guess we'll leave you alone for a year. We'll be back, though, and we hope you have some ni nice, uh, tasty mold, mold wine next year for us or I want uh, you know, some, uh, some pastries or something like that. We'll be back. See you in a year. Another related custom is when people would stand outside with a box or some kind of receptacle and ask for money. So instead of marching around, they basically stood in one place, a street corner or in front of a shop or something like that. In some ways, people think this is the origin of Boxing Day, which uh, British and, and Canadian people are more familiar with than people in America. But this tradition became so obnoxious that it got banned. Uh, people sometimes call it panhandling. Uh, it's being confronted with the needs of others. And, and sometimes, sometimes people would take advantage of it. It wouldn't even be homeless people, people truly in need. It would just be other workers. And there'd be various people roving around with their boxes or, or something asking for money during the holidays. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this happening in your town, how you would feel. How would you feel, by the way, if someone came up to you in a grocery store? and asked you and did the same thing. They didn't have a sign, they didn't have a box, but they were voicing their need. What do you do? What did I do? So here is why I brought up that man who asked me for money in the grocery store. It's because it made me feel incredibly inadequate. My savior complex rose up within me and I felt like it was my duty and my responsibility to bring him out of poverty. And of course, I knew I could do no such thing. And so I actually wanted him to leave my presence. And I was, I was hoping with the couple of dollars that I was able to give him that I could appease him and that he could, he could go away from me and I wouldn't have to deal with his problems anymore. When I look, about, look on how we react to Christmas, I see all these different reactions. We can come out with our guns and ask the needy around us to leave. We can go to the rich and the powerful and demand that they give us something. Or we can go the appeasement route, which was the traditional route. The rich and the poor can figure out a way to, uh, in a sense, neuter each other, and they keep on living in the same way. But is there something different? Is, is there a different way to live? How can we look to Jesus? and the way that he gave us. It just so happens that there is a key Christmas passage in the scriptures, in the beginning of Luke's gospel. Mary, Jesus' mother, goes to her cousin Elizabeth, 
and they have this encounter. It's, it's often called the visitation. And after this occurs, remember after the angel had appeared to Mary earlier, and Mary says yes, <laughs> yes to God's will, yes uh, to what God is calling her to do. Here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, Mary has this response to meeting her cousin Elizabeth. She says this, it's a prayer, it's a hymn, it's a prophecy. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What do we hear in this scripture? especially in the latter half of it, I see Mary pointing us to a dismantling of the powers in our world. We don't have to be the people that come out with our guns blazing, demanding those in need to leave. Quite the opposite, in fact. But what do we do? What do we do if we happen to be the powerless? What are we called to do in, that, in, in those moments? And here I see something revolutionary. Mary is telling us that through this baby in her womb, through Christ, the proud will be scattered. The mighty will be brought down from their thrones. And those that are humble will be exalted. That God is doing something amazing in our midst. There's this story in the book, When Helping Hurts, which is a, an excellent resource that I would recommend to, to churches to read and to delve into asking the, the more difficult questions of what does it mean to see God's kingdom come in the midst of communities, uh, in the midst of our cities and towns. And, and the story goes, a church was trying to figure out how to help a, a local housing project. And the initial idea was, well, we could make Christmas special for them by giving the children there presents. And for a while, the church had a lot of momentum. They gave generously to the, to the families, to the children in this housing project. They gave it Easter. They gave it Halloween. They, did, they, they had different projects throughout the year. But over time, the enthusiasm of their church waned. And they thought, well, these, these people aren't, aren't changing. And, and besides, the, the fathers aren't even present when we give the gifts. Where are they? Where are the fathers? All they do is, they, all we're doing is just giving them presents. Nothing's really changing in their lives. The, the church people had something that's often called compassion fatigue. And they were also wrestling with their own sense of what is true justice here. Is it just to give these people presence continually forever and ever? They were sensing something deeper as well. And the people, the people, the receivers of the gifts, there was a shame cycle within them. And they were not empowered. The presents were not actually empowering. In the Magnificat, we see that God is actually empowering the humble. So 
to close this tent talk today, I want, I want to read you something that, that I wrote in preparation for, for, for giving this talk. Like Mary, how might you see the kingdom of God breaking in upon you? What simple act of obedience might you say yes to, despite your lowly estate? And if you find yourself in a place of having power or riches, how might you learn to empty yourself as Mary did, allowing yourself to instead be used as a vessel of the movement of God in the world? Remember, the mountains and hills will be made low, and the rough places become plains. Before God Almighty, we are all equally unworthy of being used by him and yet equally loved, cherished, and chosen. Perhaps one of the foundational messages of Christ's coming is God's greatness will be accomplished through the lowly. And those with power and prestige will be the most effective and even have the most joy when they learn to give up what they think they have earned and what they think they deserve for all their hard work and accomplishments. I don't want anyone to stop the ways they currently serve and give to others during the holidays, but I do want us to think of what a life of self-giving love looks like when that posture is taken on in a daily, ordinary way. How might we step into the power structures that Christ has already dismantled through his life and his work on the cross and in his resurrection? So please hear me. This is not a talk trying to guilt you into doing more at Christmas. You are not doing enough. We've had enough of those messages. We've had plenty of those messages. At the same time, this is also not a talk telling you to do nothing. Instead, it's asking you to look out on your world and to consider where God is breaking in upon your own life and where God is asking you to meet the needs of others. The reason I shared my grocery store experience with that man, with you all, is to lay out before you how utterly weak I am in myself. And I am supposing that you also might feel that way. The world's problems are too vast. They're too much for us to bear on our own. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how woefully inadequate we feel, how weak we feel, how broken we feel. Can I bless others out of my own emptiness? Can I shine the light of Christ even when I lack? My contention is the story of Mary and her prayer in the Magnificat tells me, tells us, that we can. It gives me hope that God can even use me, someone like me. Okay, that's enough for now. We've, uh, we've taken up enough time. You've, uh, you've been in the tent here with me. What I've come to realize is that I haven't given you much practical advice on how to begin reimagining how to serve others at Christmas, and uh, even really in the whole of our lives. And so I'm going to throw up a, a bonus episode onto the Patreon page, and uh, something you know, maybe a 10-15 minute episode for those that are curious and want some more practical insights. And uh, so be on the lookout for that. Our next episode, our next tent talk, will be the doppelganger of service, which is resting or sabbathing during the holidays. As a doppelganger, resting is both the opposite and the twin to serving others. And so I hope to be able to unpack that intriguing statement. So for now, thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time.
So the tables have turned a little bit. I am here with Stephen and Sean, and they've uh, they've listened to my my talk on Christmas, mm. and uh, I'm I'm highly curious on what questions, feedback, uh, conundrums they they can bring to me about this holiday. And I'm actually suspicious if they might be Christmas curmudgeons themselves. And uh, so, so guys, uh, what struck you? Stephen, what, what stuck out to you? What, uh, what do you want to bring out? I wonder whether I am a Christmas curmudgeon. And I, one thing that struck me, so you said uh, uh, worship, service, celebration, and rest are these four aspects, right? And I, I wrote that down, actually. And I was like, huh. I wonder why that's why I don't like, I wonder if the fact that I tend to not like Christmas, I wonder it's because one of those things is missing or something. I wonder if that might be the, so it's, it made me, I haven't processed that thought yet, but I have wondered whether the fact, because I believed you when you said those four things, I was like, that sounds right to me. And that might be why I don't like the Christmases that I've had for a lot of my life. And it might be because I'm missing one of those aspects. Well, you <laughs> What was interesting is when I when I started to write, I had three, okay. and then I re I realized rest, like right. I didn't have rest in there, and that really was a revelation to me. That might be the one that I miss, because <laughs> yeah, it's right. often it's often hard work, or it's often you spend time out of duty, you spend time with with family or friends or lonely people, and then you feel drained sometimes. Uh, it's not always been the easiest time and last year around Christmas time, my father-in-law died. So it's just always been like many, many Christmases in my life are actually, I come away feeling more tired than I do feeling rested. So, so that was missing. Yeah. Do you, do you have any insight into what you do about that? Well, the buzzword would be the firm boundaries where you, where you say very clearly, Nope, this is, this is actually a time for rest. I really enjoyed how you brought up the idea that, that protests, the, the wassailing and caroling as actually a, a mutated form of what was originally a protest. But it also seemed to me that how do we do something that doesn't just reinforce the status quo? Like if I'm just this rich guy, because I am, I'm a rich, powerful white guy in the grand scheme of life, right? How, how do I not just reinforce the status quo by tossing some coins at poor people once a year and go, they're there, and pat them on the head, right? Because you don't want that. It's that's not what you, you you're saying that that was an original reason. It was like a an amelioration of social injustice, and it got turned into this sort of show, a parade or a pantomime of charity and justice. But really, all it does is it kind of releases the steam once a year, but it leaves the injustice intact. So I don't think you you want to be like that. So you want to be more like Mary, who says the Lord is going to bring down the proud and he's going to lift up the humble. And yeah. uh, so it's more than just a, a surface thing, which then just ultimately leaves everything the, the way it was. But I am thinking as somebody who might be in lots of ways, the one with the have, I'm not a have not, I'm a have. So how do I emerge from Christmas not feeling utterly drained? Because right now I often think I I'm a have, I've got, time and energy and some income so i should be hosting people at my house i should be spending time with lonely awkward difficult people i should be doing this 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 and this and i come away feeling drained so what is the difference between being a have who's recognizing he's lots to give and resting how do we so, have those two together 
Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. And and I have a quick clarification. Maybe I'm curious your answer to this. I, I don't think Sean and I can answer this because we're American. Right. Is have you ever heard of a tradition in England where where during the 12 days or maybe just around New Year's, yeah. people come calling? Like like there's there's this expectation yeah. that your house is just kind of open and yeah, oh, you know, you know, so and so let, let's go stop by so and so's yes, place. We would we have that. Is that yeah. a thing in England? Yeah, and it would be vestiges of the wassailing tradition that you mentioned. And we do still have bits of that. And it now becomes Christmas caroling, where you have gro groups of people going from door to door. But I think there would still be a tradition that around that season, you could just drop in on somebody. Yeah, yeah. Or people will have, have parties where it's an open an open house and, and they expect people to just drop in and out. It, it's, yeah. There's a sort of a, a cultural memory of that. For sure. Okay. And we even have a song. Do you know the song about the uh, give us some figgy pudding? We won't yeah. leave until we get some. We won't yes. leave until we get some. And that's directly from what you were talking about. The, exactly. And there's there's a lot of those types of protests. Yeah. Carols, yeah. Where there, there's like these veiled threats, you know, it's veiled <laughs> threat. Yeah. And your your podcast episode, which I thought was really fun and startling and challenging to me yeah. was I had never thought of that before. And so you, a, a penny yeah. dropped when you, when you said that, I was like, oh, well, that's where that comes from. A roving bands of, of peasantry yeah. descending upon the landed gentry, demanding food and drink. <laughs> we'll burn your house down if you, if you don't give us something. Yeah. So, so I, I identify, I kind of feel like in terms of the lottery of history, I'm probably more on the landed gent. I'm not one, but yeah, I'm a white man with a job who yeah. lives who speaks English and lives in England. So I've won the lottery ticket in life. I get that. Yeah. So I'm a have in terms yeah. of the world. So now what do I do? How do I not just become drained? How do I not just strive? How do I not treat my Christmas duty as just striving all the time to, uh, to uh, change the injustice in the world, which I'm not going to be able to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting that you're bringing all this up um, and just to go back to that idea of opening up our homes. Uh, there's this there's this story. This comes from the early 1800s in America. They had this tradition. It was around New Year's and it was basically this relatively wealthy family. Uh, like you said, a, an established family in the in the New England, Northeast mm. England, uh, United States. And it was just this endless succession of people coming into their house mm -hmm. and they were just utterly annoyed and exhausted like i could tell that they were like let's let's get rid of this tradition like I'm yeah kind right of yeah so i i was i was like thinking about it like there's there's something beautiful about it so i actually think you're pointing to an excellent question which is how can we be opening how can we be self-giving and yet not completely exhaust ourselves and fatigue, like burn ourselves out on these things. I don't have an answer to that yet. I wish I did. I guess part of it might be, and I think Sean was going to ask you about this. The, okay. the gentleman who showed, who showed up in the grocery store uh, yeah. and what happened to him. Um, I think part of it might be that we are so individualistic that we think that it's all on us to do it. When, when perhaps if I'm giving, if I'm giving of my time and energy and money to somebody at Christmas time, Hopefully, I should also be part of a movement of people who are giving to me as well. Yeah. So that I'm not utterly drained. It's it's more like I'm I'm going to spend time with this lonely, like there's lonely people, and sometimes they're lonely for a reason because they're really annoying or difficult, or and 
I'm going to spend time with this difficult person and, and I might be emotionally drained at the end of it, but I know that I'm in a community of people who have my back and I will go and get to spend time with them and they will fill me up. And I wondered whether that might be almost a, one of the solutions where it's not an individual who has to change everything, but we as a group of fellow traveler believer type people, maybe we could be the ones who are together helping each other do this stuff, right? I do think that is a, a key. Uh, and um, I had this little bonus episode that I uh, recorded uh, where I, and one of the things I talk about it, because I didn't fully explain, I didn't really give much practical advice. And, and I realized that. Uh, and so in my little bonus episode, I go into, I, I talk about a friend and she has started a local not-for-profit and she gives aid, uh, food, uh, clothing to homeless people in my area. Mm-hmm. And I mention her because she's, on the ground doing it all the time and um and people by the way people are always telling her like well if you did this and such and such and such like it's so fascinating people that are somebody who's literally giving their life to help homeless people and then all these pe- other people are telling her well you just need to do this and if we did this homelessness would end and yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, she, yeah. and she's always kind of like oh these people you know like she, they don't understand that this is a really complicated process uh problem right and and also on the other end of it are just people that need compassion. And um, so I think I think you're actually pointing to something really key, which is I need her. I need her. Like, I shouldn't just show up and be like, what? I'm here. I got the goods. <laughs> like, right. Like, like I'm I am. I go to her and I go, please, you know, show us what, what do we need where I'm here humbly. And yeah. and then in the midst of it. It's a, actually, it's a, it's a, another deeper question is, is how is she help? How is she replenishing herself? Yeah. Because she's, she's tired a lot. She's stressed a lot. And so I don't know, maybe how can I, as a pastoral presence, how can I help her and support her? Mm-hmm. Um, that's another serious question. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I am totally tracking with you on that. Uh, Sean, you've been patient. Uh, you've been waiting for the, the present of being able to <laughs> talk i'm curious what, what the, <laughs> i have to make up funny christmas puns um what, what what struck you or, or where do you want to take the conversation oh well uh, that's a that's a great i've been trying to think of which way to go and all of this but i want to start out with saying i know not to placate but i do want to say from a from a listener standpoint i i think everybody would agree you did a really great job on this because i, I love the fact that you the story way you brought it all the way around and the way you incorporated yourself as the center of the story without being egotistical and selfish about it. And it was kind of this, you know, lamenting on what we need to do and not kind of uh, pointing fingers and telling everybody else what's wrong with them and they need to be a certain way. So I do want to give you kudos for that because I think there's a temptation to do that. And that's kind of what I've been battling listening to this is uh, which way, which direction do we take some of the commentary and how do we really address it? But I, I really love the fact that I got the chance to listen because to be honest, as Stephen started out, I, I, you'd probably say I was a, I, I'm a curmudgeon if you ask my wife, like right now, um, in terms of Christmas, definitely not a, a positive uh, feel for it. Not, and I can maybe try to explain that. When you had me on your podcast, that's kind of how you, uh, you know, a couple of years yeah. ago, that's kind of how you framed it. You're like, ah, I could tell that, you know, you, you, you didn't know what you felt about, about the holiday. You were... <laughs> well, well I, I have some pretty strong feelings about it. Now, but the, the sad, I guess the sad or the irony is there was a time in my life where it was my absolute favorite. Like it was the thing. Like I, I, uh, some of my highlights, I'm making somebody cry with a kiss, Christmas gift is because it's meant so much to them, you know, because it was this thing that I knew, right? I knew from being intimate with them where the, what this would mean. 
and it had nothing to do with dollars, it had nothing to do with the amount or anything like that, or just the fact it's just this symbol that says, you know, I get you and you get me. And we're it's kind of a symbol of that. So um, all, the, all that to say, I think my, my issue uh, with it is that I, it's lacking in substance. And I think Stephen hit it on the head of it, those areas, those four things you're talking about. If, if my Christmas is just, it, look, for us, it's just about gifts and time off right now. I mean, the, 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 the crux of the Christmas season is that, you know, it may be the one, maybe somebody gets drugged to a church and, you know, or something like that, or maybe they'll go listen to a candlelight service or something that they only do once a year at a church, which happens a lot down here. And it's beautiful. And those things, there's some sentiment going on, but it's kind of like the, the back to the nonprofit side. But if you just do it that one time, my big issue now is showing up to church once or giving one donation to a nonprofit in December and then never doing it again, or maybe not at all. Uh, and then just kind of calling it good uh, is a word we talked about earlier, sustainability off air. My, my first reaction when I hear about somebody feeding a hundred families, like some super famous person or somebody rich or a local athletes, like, Oh, they fed a hundred families with, uh, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what are those families doing the next night? What are, what are they doing today? What about in February? You know, where are they getting their, <laughs> giving them food one day? That's great. Wonderful. I'm not going to argue against that, but tomorrow comes really, really quick. And so that's where some of my disjointedness comes in terms of our perspective of the holidays. And we just had the largest, I think $9 billion worth of online sales the day after Thanksgiving. And so there's this buttress for me of here's Thanksgiving this day where we're giving thanks for what we have. We overindulge traditionally in, in, in you know, almost like this Roman feast of having more than we need. And we wake up the next day and buy an exorbitant amount of uh, material things in celebration of, of the birth of Jesus, who is the least materialistic person ever walked the earth. And so it, for me, there's this massive irony around all of those sentiments mm. that if I'm going to be a, if I'm going to imagine myself as a follower of the way, how do I reconcile those things? And then the expectation culturally, like the, the this pressure that you have to get these t-shirts and random gifts that don't mean anything to show somebody that you love them, who's close to you, that you, they already know this. And so it's kind of, so that's where my curmudgeon side comes in, but I don't want to stay in that rut. And so I do think to Stephen's point that finding a way to truly honor the season, truly engage with it and become and challenge myself around what that, what the Christmas season means and how I can do that and not just be the old grumpy guy on the hill uh, is, is the real opportunity here. So I think we need to recognize the, the, the issues. I think we need to recognize some of the, some of the disconnect, you know, it's almost like, I feel like it's a lot of the invent, yeah, we pick on evangelicals and stuff yeah. and our own selves in terms of our perspective, but how do we treat this season? And maybe the reason why it doesn't feel great is because we're not, it's not in the spirit. I mean, one thing that my wife and I have been doing for the last few years, and actually it's brought real joy to us is that we've asked people not to, not to buy us gifts. Yeah. So rather than be the curmudgeons going, we think it's too materialistic. We're refusing to buy presents. We're not doing that. We we'll buy presents for other people. But we've just said to our family and, and close friends, look, don't we don't actually need any more stuff. We don't want it. We It's fine. Just please don't buy us gifts. And that has that has actually made us feel quite light of heart and spirit. Um, but for us, that was one way because we didn't want to be curmudgeons and make people. But that was like the best thing we could do to figure out how to that middle ground. Right. Um, and so that's one of the things. And then when we've been trying to buy gifts for people, I we've been trying to think about ways to get gifts for people that are actually based around relationships. So rather than buy them stuff, we'll get them a gift certificate for a restaurant or something so that they are going out to do something together. 
it's just little things like that we're trying to do because i know we live in a world in which you have to buy gifts and that's how you show love and so if you don't buy a gift it looks like you don't love them <laughs> right for christmas nothing oh exactly so <laughs> that's the world we've inherited and it's rotten in lots of ways but that is the world so we've we're trying to figure out ways around that within those parameters <laughs> Now, I, I'm glad that you both brought up gift giving, you know, like it, that wasn't necessarily on my radar, but you brought it up. And if you look at the history of gift giving and how it's progressed, hmm. it actually, in, in many ways, in terms of Christmas, it started out as a power dynamic between the have the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. And it, right now we think of Christmas, uh, Christmas gifting as it's so domesticated and yeah. it's actually the most important Christmas gift giving is still a power dynamic. It's between the parent and the child or, you know, Santa Claus and the child. Right, 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 right. So yep. it's like, here, here I am. I, I can afford the PlayStation 5 <laughs> and right. I'm going to gift my child who obviously can't. And so there's that power dynamic. Yeah, right. So in terms of the history of Christmas, there, there was this, yes, I have all this stuff and I will begrudge myself and I will acknowledge your need and, and I'll, you know, and I'll gift it to you. And what the, what the, the line of thought is that, yeah, but nothing actually changed. Yeah. And so I think what's interesting about you, Stephen, uh, saying, yeah, don't, don't give us gifts. You're, 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 dis, you're disrupting this, this, uh, this need to give gifts and saying, listen, you're, you're kind of saying, I don't need anything from you. And so mm. I don't know. I mean, maybe the question is, is that's where interesting. You... Yeah. yeah. It's the like... power. There's a power yeah. play going on and, and you can actually name the power play behind it. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm um, the, the image of boxing day of, of the 26th. Um, and it's, and it's not so strong anymore, but, but think about having a box in a church, everybody's yeah. putting money into it and it's yeah. locked. Like, I don't, I don't see the, the gospel. I don't see the kingdom in the locked box. <laughs> um, and it's, so it's this, I'm, I'm trying to ask this deeper question for myself as well as like, yeah, how do we open the box? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how do we yeah. keep the box open? And uh, I think you're both doing, I'm wrestling with it myself. Well, so. I think this little series you're doing, Sean, or Chris, on, on this uh, Christmas is just going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing the next three. Okay. So thank good. you for doing them yeah thanks for thanks for listening for the conversation to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on social media and learn more about 10th theology at www.tenththeology.com thank you for joining us and god bless everyone